This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jesse. Solomon, the father of Rabon. Rabon, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of David. The father of Matan. Matan, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, so there, there were 14, 14 generations from David and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Does it seem odd to you to hear that scripture read on Christmas Eve? It does to me, and I chose the scripture. <laughs> You and I might expect maybe the, the virgin conceiving, giving birth to a son, laying him in a manger, or maybe shepherds in the field, wise men coming from distant lands, any of those stories. But this one, it begins by saying this is the record of the ancestry of Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of David and Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, and then 33 more generations. And then finally it gets down to Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's the first telling of the Christmas story. That's the first time Jesus' birth is announced in Scripture. There are other announcements of it. Matthew 2, there's this announcement in Matthew 2 where we see the wise men come in. Luke chapter 2, there's the announcement of his birth. We see the shepherds come in. But this is the very first one. Now picture with me for a moment that scripture has never been written. You've been entrusted with the story. You've been told all the details. You've been told about the, the family tree and about the shepherds and the wise men and the, the virgin conceiving, the whole thing. You're told to write it down. Would you write it down in this order, in this sequence? Like, would you start with, this is the record of the ancestry of Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, blah, blah, blah. blah. Would you start that way? I, I don't think you would, but if you did, you'd get to your editor, and your editor would say, no, no, you can never do this. You know why? Because some people give you one-page chance. They'll read the first page. If you don't grip them... If you haven't grabbed their heart or their mind or their soul or their curiosity, if you haven't gripped them, they won't give you a second page. They'll never turn the page. You can't start this way. If you do, and if it should, unlikely, if it should become a bestseller, if it should, people are going to skip that page anyway, right? And that's true, isn't it? Your editor would say you've got the whole, you've got the potential of the greatest story ever told. Pick any other place to start. You can start with the 
wise men or the shepherds or the virgin birth or even the king who sends soldiers to kill the baby. You can, anywhere. We'll do a backflash coming back, but don't start, don't start. Don't start with a family tree. And yet the God of the universe starts with a family tree. Why does he do that? Why does he start there? To give you some context of the answer, let me take a step back with you. Let me take you back to last July. Last July, you were sweating somewhere. Earlier today, you were probably sweating somewhere because it's Christmas Eve on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Last July, July the 9th, I woke up completely blind in my left eye, suddenly, unexpectedly shocked by it. I had uh, severely detached retina. I had surgery immediately following that. Usually the third or fourth day after vision begins to return, the third day after I was still blind, the fourth day I was blind, the fifth day I was blind, the ninth day I was still blind. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, but, but um, in my mind, before this happened, I thought one eye, two eye, hey, you know, what's the big deal? But I didn't realize that two eyes give you so much more peripheral vision, two eyes give you depth perception. I didn't realize this was the biggest thing. I didn't realize that, that your two eyes play off of each other and they enhance the vision that you get. You get a better picture with two eyes. So I'm missing all of that. I'm nine days into blindness in one eye. Nine days into blindness in one eye. And I finally came to this peace of mind that I was going to be okay. Vision every turn, I was going to be okay. I'd be just fine with that. And I even began to see God might even use that in some way. Later that day, I listened to an old song by Stephen Curtis Chapman named For the Sake of the Call. And, and it's all about the disciples following Jesus with this abandon. And there's some, uh, some verses in the bridge. Actually, it's late at night. A bridge doesn't have verses in it, does it, Mark Hale? But anyway, <laughs> give me some grace. It's 11 o'clock. There are some lyrics in the song. <laughs> and it says that, that these disciples didn't follow with abandon. It wasn't because of a creed or a cause. It wasn't because of a dream or a promise. It was because it was Jesus who called them. And I thought in that for a moment. I thought they knew Jesus. That's, the, that's all it took. That's all it took. And I did a flashback to 35 years prior when I began to follow Jesus. And when I began to follow Jesus, it wasn't because of some creed or some glorious theology, which actually Christianity is, it wasn't because of some great cause, which Christianity is the greatest cause. It wasn't because of some dream of what life would be following Jesus. It wasn't even because of his promises. I began to follow him just because I began to know him. To know the, the person, to know the personality, the divine personality, to know his character and who he is and how he felt toward me, what he's done toward, toward me, just because I began to know him. Seven years later... I would change my career, the entire direction of our family's life, just because Jesus called and I knew Jesus. So day nine of being blind in one eye, I found myself yearning to know him better, yearning to know him as the disciples did. I realized that they had actually walked with him. They had seen him with their eyes. They had touched him with their hands. They had seen the miracles in living color. They had heard his teaching live. They had seen all of that, and I found myself yearning deeply and saying, Jesus, as much as I know you now, I want to know you fully. I want to know your full personality. I want to know the fullness of your divinity. I want to know everything about you. How can I do this? And in 35 years, I've felt God speak to me many times. In the next moment, I felt Jesus say five words, meet me in the pages. 
meet me in the pages. I knew instantly he meant the pages of Scripture and all of Scripture, but most specifically the pages of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are written specifically about him to meet him in those pages. That was day nine, day 10. Two significant things happened. The first was that that some vision began to appear in my left eye again. And it's improved, and now I have partial vision in my left eye, and I cannot tell you how eternally grateful I am, folks. To have one and a half eyes is a thousand times better than one eye. I mean, that was a huge event. It's marked on my calendar, July 18th, 2019. I got a second eye partially back. It's huge. But there was something much bigger, much more impactful that happened on that same day. I began afresh again the journey of meeting Jesus in the pages. And I began in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the family tree. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and on and on and on. Some of you have done family tree. Some of you have done genealogy, I suspect. And I bet when you began, I bet you had some hopes that you would find some upstanding characters and some people you were proud of in the past. I I suspect that. I suspect, too, that there was some tiny, tiny glimmer of possibility in your mind that maybe somebody great and famous was in your family tree someplace. Maybe George Washington, and if you found that to be true, you would stand a little bit taller just because you were part of the bloodline of George Washington. Or maybe Martin Luther King or Billy Graham or someone else. Maybe some tiny, tiny glimmer. If you just had discovered that, you would just walk a little bit taller. But I also suspect when you began your journey, you had a little bit of discomfort that you might find some scoundrels in your family tree. And suppose the worst of the worst happened... And you found you were a direct descendant of Adolf Hitler. (laughs) I think the first thing you do is go to the shower and try to wash the scum and the dirt off. Probably every remembrance of it, you would do the same thing again and again and again. Even though you had nothing to do with him, you you had no responsibility for his actions. Just the fact you were in the bloodline, I, I suspect you would, you would probably burn the family tree. You'd erase all of the efforts to find him, and you would never tell a soul, I suspect. I suspect. Well, I've looked at the family tree of Jesus, and there's some good people in it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, but even the best of them, Abraham told some horrific lies, unbelievable lies. Jacob stole the birthright of his twin. He stole his birthright. David murdered one of his closest friends to cover up one of David's other horrible sins. These were the best in the family tree. I've looked at the family tree. Most of them, the majority of them are, are, to say there are scoundrels is not speaking badly enough of them. Usually it's a family tree in their time was all men. It was a patriarchal society. You just covered the family tree of the men. But in this reading of the family tree that God puts in here, there are four women that are mentioned before Mary. Three of them are scandalous. You look at the family tree and there are, this is no exaggeration, there are serial killers, there are prostitutes. If you didn't know this was Jesus' family tree, if this were your family tree, you would burn it? You wouldn't put it on the front page of your resume. 
This wouldn't be how you would start out. Hey, look at my family tree. This is not where you'd start. You would not introduce yourself to a new friend and say, hey, let me tell you about my past. Let me tell you about some of the scoundrels, not scoundrels, some of the serial killers in my past. You wouldn't do that. And yet the God of the universe, the God of the universe has done that. A couple of things you need to understand to, to be gripped by this. One is this. In their time, they were much more closely identified with their family tree than you and I would be. Their ancestry was so much more a part of them than it is for us. If you got George Washington, that's really great and cool and everything, but, but, but it's still it's, it's some distant thing. For them, their, their family tree was so much a part of them, it's as though it was simply a part of their past. They knew it wasn't literally, but they carried it with them as though it was a part of their past, a part of their person. It was a part of their identity. We don't do that now. Second thing you need to know and be gripped by this is that, is that Jesus could have chosen any family tree he wanted. Think of it. So Mary's a virgin. She conceives, gives birth, and then she marries Joseph, and that puts Jesus in Joseph's family tree, the serial killers and the prostitutes. Don't you think the God of the universe, the God the Father, and God the Son could have picked any family tree they wanted, and they picked this one intentionally. Why? Why? Broken, disreputable, sinful, scarred. Why? To identify with you and me in our brokenness and our scars and our sinfulness. Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sin-free Son of God, attached to his personhood, to his identity, a dark and broken past to identify with you and I with our dark and broken past as well. That's simply why he did it, to identify with you and me. And in identifying with us, saying three things to us. First saying, I know you. I know everything about you. I know how I made you, how I crafted you. I know every good thing about you. And yes, I even know every dark thing about you, every broken thing about you, I know you. I know you fully. I identify with you. I have identified myself, broken and darkness in my past. I've identified myself with you. I know you. And in knowing you, I love you deeply. I love you. That's the message of Jesus coming. John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much, he gave his only son. He sent his only son. It's the, it's the message of Jesus coming to this planet. He came purely out of love. He knows you. He knows me. And he says to you, I love you deeply. And then he says, and this is maybe the best conclusion of all, he says, and I've come to rescue you. The passage of the family tree ends with verse 17, four verses later, Matthew 1, 21, the angel speaks to Joseph, who's uh, the soon-to-become stepdad of Jesus, and, and the angel says to him, you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will rescue his people from their sins, and the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves, the Lord rescues his message to you and I is, I know you, I love you, and I've come to rescue you from the brokenness and the darkness in your life. 
He knows all of the wounds, the ones that have been caused by others, the ones that are self-inflicted. He knows all of the sorrow, all of the sadness. He knows all of the fear. He knows the emptiness. He knows the anger. He knows the lack of of forgiveness. He knows all of that. And he says, I know you, I love you, and I've come to rescue you from each of those things, from all of that. I have come to rescue you. And rescue always begins with surrender. The, the beginning of rescue, being rescued by Jesus, is to say to him, Jesus, I want to surrender all of my life to you. I don't even know yet what that really fully means. It is just my heart and desire to surrender everything about me to you. That's the beginning of surrender. That's where rescue begins. That's where rescue fundamentally begins. As you begin the journey, surrender to him then, then you begin to, or maybe he begins to put a spotlight on some of the brokenness or the darkness and says, see this, this sin here, this time for this one to go, I'm going to help you. I'm going to rescue you from this one. You see this wound here that's been oozing and hurting for a long, long time? Now it's time for this one to be healed. I'm going to walk with you in this one. The grief that you're in, I'm, I'm going to walk with you in that and through that. I'm going to bring you through that and rescue you through that. The anger, I've come to rescue you from that over and over again. Surrender, surrender. So rescue begins with surrender. Rescue continues with surrender as well. Jesus is good for his word. He said, I've come to identify with you. I know you. I love you. I've come to rescue you. He's good at his word. For 2,000 years, he's been rescuing people just like you and me for 2,000 years. The harbor's now 22 years old. For 22 years, he's been rescuing people at the harbor for 22 years over and over and over again. I'm going to pray in a moment, and I want to tell you what's going to follow that because there's, there's potentially high impact for you in it. After I pray, you're going to hear five very brief stories of people from the harbor who God has rescued from various darkness and brokenness. You're going to hear their five stories. Then you'll hear a song of rescue that it's as though Jesus is speaking to you in that song. And then following that song of rescue then, that's when candlelight will begin. And you could certainly do candlelight just as this beautiful ceremony. It really is, especially the view I get from up here. It's this beautiful ceremony. You could do candlelight differently, though. If you're one who, who God has rescued you from some of the darkness, some of the brokenness, when the, the lit candle comes to your unlit candle and you light yours, you could light yours and say to God, this is... This is the representation of of the darkness you've taken from my life that you've rescued me from, and hold it high. Or maybe tonight you're recognizing, you recognize you've never surrendered. When the lit candle comes to your unlit candle, when it lights yours, this is the time for you to say, this is the time, Jesus, it is my longing to surrender everything to you. I want you to rescue it all. This is all of me. This is the representation of my surrender. Or maybe you've surrendered, and maybe it's, Maybe it's the anger or the fear or the emptiness or the hopelessness or whatever it may be. When the the lit candle comes to your unlit candle to light yours and say, Jesus, I'm surrendering this to you. Would you rescue me from this, this night and begin the process with me? Father in heaven, stunning, stunning that you and Jesus would choose this family tree such brokenness, such darkness, stunning that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, 
would identify with ones like me, ones like each other person in this room. Stunning that he says, I know you. I love you. And I've come to rescue you. Father, this is a time of surrender even now. In Jesus' name, amen.